Welcome everyone to Just Cause with Derek A. Bardwell profiling the people and the movements who are taking on some of the most important global issues of our times. In each episode you will hear from those who are challenging society's prevailing culture of competition over collaboration, individualism over the community, acquisition over mission, preservation over progression, factors that systematically quieten people with valid alternatives to the status quo. You will hear the views, approaches and tactics of those people who are reimagining our public services, speaking truth to power, providing real hope and opening the doors for the marginalised to move to the centre. Just Cause will highlight the work of those with bold visions, those who build their strategies through the lens of the people and communities who suffer the most under our current systems, those with alternatives that, to paraphrase Angela Davis, address racism, male dominance, homophobia, class bias and other structures of domination. In short, we will talk to those who are setting the standards that should be met. On this podcast, we are welcoming Imi Kaur, Imi is the co-founder of Impact Hub Birmingham, director of Project Zero Zero, founding member of TEDx Brum, and the founder and conceptualizer of Civic Square. Welcome. Well, thank you so much, Derek. This is so exciting. <laughs> I feel like a celebrity. <laughs> it's really good to, to, to see you again, because I feel like I don't see you that often. Um, but I hear you on social media, and I also <laughs> very much hear... Sorry about that, by the no, way. No, it's a good Pretty thing. Pretty wild on social media. <laughs> no, but it's really good. And also the many things that you're doing. So we're going to get into some of that right um, now. But the first thing that I wanted to ask you was, um, you know, very much your work um, works at the intersection of community, social justice, design, enterprise and place. How did Impact Hub Birmingham emerge, which is what people will know you quite a bit for? Mm-hmm. And what was its chief aims? What were you trying to do? OK, so Impact Hub Birmingham emerged by uh, through... a. a a range of happy accidents, right? And I think it's really important to to know that when I started the hub, I was much younger. I was much at the, the more at the beginning of my career, and um, really interestingly, like I had quite a conservative education. Mm-hmm. So it was really actually one of the first times that I realised that if you want to get something done, you can go out and build it. Okay. And I want to say that because I think it's like absolutely horrific that I got to the age of twenty five and I hadn't realised. You know, that actually if I didn't see myself as a business person, you know, at school or whatever, that you can go out and build the thing that you want to do. So it was part of a decade of me unravelling lots of what I had learnt about how the world works and what my role in it uh, would be. Um, a couple of key things happened. I, I worked um, at a a foundation in, in London and then in an, uh, in a housing association back in, in Birmingham. And that was really the interplay between international development, falling out of love with it, local development, trying to understand it, and getting to a point where I realised that, that most of the resources in these large organisations that are here for, um, you know, the most marginalised, the most... Um, uh, socio-economically deprived or um, under-resourced communities, actually they replicated the same models of you know, b- bringing all that wealth to the top and the people working on the ground were really like, uh, you know, struggling with, with their resource. So that was the start. Um, and then coming back to Birmingham, the second part of this was that um, it was my home city. I wanted to be there. I'd seen the way London attracted the talent, attracted the... Um, it just drained everything, not just not just brains, not just talent. Um, everyone was based here. Um, the, the best knowledge and the best work was seemed like it was based here. And I just... First of all, I wanted to go home and be back close to my grandmother. Um, and secondly, I, I was like, how how can we make sure that places outside of London are not just seen as the places where the nice regional work happens, but actually where world-class work can happen. Because I still had really big ambitions about what I wanted to do. And then the the third part of this is when I got back to Birmingham, I just responded to a Twitter exchange with someone who said there's no TEDx's in Birmingham. And, you know, eight, nine years ago, it was quite a big deal because there was about 10 or 12 in London. Do you want to meet up for a coffee if you want to do it? And I said, yeah. And that was the start of a journey that... Uh, began with two people in a coffee shop to last year more than 2,000 in Birmingham Hippodrome. And that was a complete volunteer-led activity. And through that process, lots of people told me Birmingham is not going to respond to this. Birmingham's citizens don't 
they don't get involved like they do in other places. Um, you know, they're more apathetic. And I was like, really? This is also the youngest, most diverse city in Europe, according to the stats. Um, I couldn't quite understand that. Uh, and uh, and what I later realised and what the later the Kurzlate review, which was the government's review into Birmingham City Council, highlighted was quite a paternal, quite a patriarchal, uh, quite large council that, that, that very much... Um, had had an impact on the way citizens saw their role, the role of big charity, big third sector. So I wanted to get into the middle of this and start to do something. Um, and the final happy accident was that um, through my very wild Twitter life, which I know you, you get to see, <laughs> sorry to anyone who follows me on Twitter because I do really use it as a, as a place to kind of let everything out. But through that, um, a chap called Indy Johar from Project Zero Zero had followed my work. We bumped into each other at, um, at the council house in Birmingham where he was launching something. And he said, come and join Zero Zero because what you're doing here um, and the work we're doing, you know, we need to build something in Birmingham. So that was the start of it all, really. And the reason why we uh, went for the Impact Hub as a as a... Uh, sort of institution at that time was because there was lots of great leaders uh, seminal Conda Mason from Impact Hub Oakland changed my life in a day and still to this moment if I'm in her presence I, I feel With who sorry Conda Mason from Impact okay. Hub Oakland she she really was doing incredible things with the Impact Hub in Oakland because what what we found through TEDx through those early years of you know how are we going to make this movement into something more permanent. I don't just mean permanent in terms of physical space, but I mean permanent in terms of that this kind of work can flourish in really long-term ways in, in Birmingham. Um, and I was going around the hubs and they were nice, they were beautiful, they were well-designed, but they were, um, they just looked like sort of middle-class members clubs for people working in a socially, um, socially just socially progressive way and it hadn't always been like that but the business models of we works and other things had really squeezed them to be having to com compete with the wrong wrong thing so initially i just felt the impact hub isn't for us this is not going to work in birmingham until i met conda okay and she just turned around to me and said what are you doing right like first of all stop waiting for permission Second of all, stop looking at, if, if you don't want to use the hub as a model, that's fine. But if you do, there's a great global network, there's some precedent, there's some advice, but also make it yours. So in, in Oakland, what I think Conda was essentially doing is rebuilding that 21st century civil rights movement, the town hall, where black and brown entrepreneurs and, and many others from Oakland were able to rebuild that social contract, rebuild the vision for the future from their, their point of view as well as at that time have a business model that was more than just grants. So that's where the hub started from. Meeting Indy, meeting Conda, very quickly we could see the trajectory of the hub hub um, business model. There were challenges. You know, one is that at the time I first joined, you know, WeWork and these other spaces were seen as the competition, which, you know, Indy uh, and later I felt fundamentally was was not correct. Um they had moved away from being these these beautiful places where cities, people in cities were coming together across sectors to really uh, create a new vision. Um, and they were really struggling in terms of retaining their co-founders and talent into the business. So we signed a private lease because um, nobody, upon nobody in Birmingham would believe a community asset transfer, a partnership, a, a floor in the new library or anything would be a good collaboration. They didn't think it was possible for us to do it. And and that's where things really started. So the hub started as a five or six year R&D project to really, really understand what's at that time, the town hall of the 21st century, how are citizens going to re-embed themselves in, in every way in the city, leading on the challenges that affect them most, um, being at the heart of, of those social challenges, understanding and embracing the complexity of them. Um, but then also, how are we going to find a new, a new, bolder, brighter vision for the future that is that is built by us um, and with a range of stakeholders? And it was quite a it's quite a traditional kind of like now, if you hear it, you'd probably go, yeah, everybody's saying that right now. But six or seven years ago, 
um, really shaking up all of that. But, but was, not many was people. Have, but not many people yeah. have nailed it. I yeah. mean, yeah. even even. Well, we haven't you, nailed it yet. But <laughs> yeah, but but yeah. I guess conceptually, yeah. in terms of civic participation. Yeah. It's still a restricted few in most yeah. communities that have the largest or the biggest voice. So yeah. reimagining how people engage yeah. and also being creative around it, yeah. there's still an absence of that, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 so we we tested a bunch of questions. How do you keep these talented co-founding teams in the business, on the payroll, playing their visions out through these platforms rather than using them and then being headhunted elsewhere and you'd be left with one co-founder and an operational manager of your space. We tested how do you get to the heart of um, some of the best work around the world in terms of uh, systemic and complex challenges. So Helsinki Design Lab for me uh, was a... Um, a really interesting and seminal moment. Um, I thought there was lots that needed to happen to improve it. Um, but, you know, 10, 12 years ago, when the work around the ageing studio and other things were led by Marco Steinberg, I was impressed. I was like, yo, how are we going to take this and put it into a Birmingham context? Um, I wanted to look at business models. I wanted to look at landlords. I wanted to look at land and ownership. Yep. Um, and finally, I wanted to look at how do we create this balance where um, we can be commercially savvy, sustainable, outside of grant structures, not having to ask for permission from um, traditional power to exist. At the same time, how can we be open and inclusive and accessible to anyone who walks through the door? Um, and we did a lot of that. We're not right there yet, but that's lots to do with, you know, geographies and all of those sorts of things. And that's why we're, we're moving forward. But that really was, you know, what I wanted to do. And I think in a time where the social set when we started the social sector was you know the cic had come to town um big sighted capital social investment we were seen as world leaders in those spaces um, and that was cool so talent was being attracted to the uk in in a way that is just non-existent right now um and but what i was what i learned very quickly from indian zero zero was that that the the adoption of the tech model for change, like social accelerators, elevator pitches, we're going to end homelessness, we're going to end loneliness, this app is going to do that, pushing people through multiple accelerator programs and funding them and investing in them was just totally broken. This was not going to work for, for multiple reasons. Social challenges don't work like that. Mm -hmm. There isn't an exit from them that makes sense. And accelerators and, and those sorts of models work on the basis of you fund these 10, 12 people, one will get you 100x, one will get you 10x, the rest will probably fail, so the accelerate, accelerator makes money. That's never going to happen in the social space, so none of these things are actually really sustainable. Um, so in the early work, it was about how do we move away from social enterprises as silver bullet into social enterprise as part of a system uh, of of um, approaches and interventions, uh, and that's big it, it, that can solve complex or can work to solve complex social issues. And so, changing the language around all of that was really important to us. And then discovering how you do it was what I uh, really then put into um, practice on the ground in in Birmingham. It, it, the interesting thing here. Um, uh, among many things is that even if you have lots of accelerator programs it's still the same people that are being oh, yeah. invested in so yeah. so there's a, a, an ethical issue yeah. there is another dimension there as well but I wanted to, to go back to the word absence mm -hmm. and, and I think you said it earlier yeah. what was absent for you yeah. growing up in Birmingham, Birmingham, because yeah. I'm surprised that you know it wasn't until you were 25 yeah. that this came to you. So, in terms of absence, what was the absence? Because obviously, yeah. all of the talent in not just Birmingham but other communities yeah. are probably not being harnessed through current structures. Yeah. And what's the absence now yeah. in terms of how to support those who have talent but are not coming from? backgrounds where they might go to university or yeah. whatever traditional means of yeah. what success might look like in this society yeah okay so this is a retrospective view okay yeah. i'm looking back on this now okay and i'd say two key things were were what i have unraveled in my brain so the first one is a very legitimate and like 
this is not me blaming my parents. My parents were absolutely glorious. In fact, under incredibly difficult circumstances, my my dad has had like horrendous life. Um, and coming out of all of that and doing everything that he did was for us to progress was incredible. But they knew one way of success, right? The children of immigrants study, study hard. You study, you get into the best schools, you get into the best universities, work as hard as you can because that way you have all the opportunities that we never had. I don't want you to go through the trauma or the things that we or our parents went through and the level of displacement and racism and other intersections of challenges that are not for me to talk about on on here. Um, but, But there was that one model that one model that, you know, English society had made you kind of believe was the was the way that you move through it. And this idea that when you get there, Everything's you'll be accepted. Everything, right. yeah. You'll be accepted. There won't yeah. be racism. Yeah. Your your brain and your talents will like, and you'll be fine, right? Yeah. So that was the first one. So when you're stuck in that, that has a... Uh, an impact on what you see as progress and I still to this day uh, will say that my parents were absolutely right in what they were trying to do absolutely right um, and and given my, my mom and dad's particular circumstances where there was other stuff layered on top of the, the general like being immigrants um, I think they did an exceptional job but that has an effect right it colonizes your brain it makes you focus, and if you're like me, who was a very focused person who wanted to just be a high achiever and just be my parents' wildest dreams, right? That's what I wanted to be because they didn't get to do any of this. But that has an impact on your brain because you look at what you're trying to do and you follow like the next thing, the next thing, the next thing that you think is going to take you to that. Um, so that's the first bit. The second bit is a wider piece which I'm only now realising over the last three or four years uh, through like lots more decolonial study and practice uh, and being around many more people that can challenge um, our current narratives, is that so much of what we did, what our parents did, what our grandparents did, that we were taught to and learnt to be embarrassed of was actually the future. Mm-hmm. Explain. So... You go to my grandparents' house in Bedford, they were growing in their back garden. Um, we, our parents were like absolutely incredible with food waste and with, uh, you know, my lunchbox was full of all sorts of different things. But when I took it to school and opened it and the smell came out, you know, I was learnt to be embarrassed of of all of that. We never had plastic bags. Like our, our, co- our like subji and curry was wrapped into the middle of a, a rolled chapati and put into your lunchbox. And when you took it out, other people, and then you'd go, actually, I just want a cheese sandwich, mom. I don't want anything else. I don't, I just want to fit in, right? And so there were so many things, so many things now. I look back in the way we live, the way care played out intergenerationally, the way um, grandparents, children, parents, uh, how we lived together how things that my grandparents did when they came to this country and they created local savings groups to help everybody else get mortgages because you couldn't get mortgages because you were wearing turbans, so they'd have to have a front person. Yeah, and a partner system yeah, that and, used and to have in partner system in black yeah. communities, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, um, the way in which they negotiated and navigated social life in their front rooms, in their back rooms, at their kitchen tables, um, the collectivity of what that looked like, the generosity of, like... Um, you know, later in life, you'd hear my my parents and my uh, and my cousins and other people saying to my grandma, like, why are you just giving this money here? And, you know, we'd got much more down to the me, 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 mine, 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 us, us, us type type thinking. But when my granddad came here, you know, everybody getting together and putting money together to support the next person, this, these things were normal. And it's only through the rediscovery, and this is not me glorifying, right? It's not me saying black and brown communities have it all right, and if everybody just listened to us, the world would be a better place, right? I mean, there's a bit of me that, that <laughs> agrees with well, some Well, of there that. is some truth yeah. in there's that in, in the sense that, you know, there's so much great stuff that happens within our communities. Yeah. And it's only when it's reparceled and repackaged yeah. many years and later sold back to us. and sold back to us <laughs> yeah. 
15, 20 years later yep. that it actually gets any resonance or yeah. money. But and then, we're, not, we're, never, we're never benefiting from that, right? So some, f- some fun examples are your turmeric lattes and, you know, your CBD oils and your, like, you know, th- there's plenty of fun examples and that's cool. Like, we can have a laugh about that. But this goes deep. This goes really, really deep. And, and so the rediscovery of that, right, the rediscovery of... Uh, unpacking all this stuff in my brain, my ancestors, my grandparents, the story. Like, I have spent the last few years really understanding what they were doing, why they were growing, what the history was, what, what, what you know, in the, the, they, they too grew up in, in some of the worst socioeconomic circumstances in this country because, of course, my grandparents were uh, 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 after product of partition and they lost everything. You know, Punjab was split down the middle. They lost their businesses. They lost, lost so much. They 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 came and they were right at the bottom of the stack, doing the the most hard, dirty work in the factories, um, going from literally not being able to have rent or buy homes without cutting their hair and whatever. And you'll and you'll know plenty of of stories of this yourself. They too built themselves up right from the bottom of what is classed as, you know, uh, socioeconomic status with the backdrop of displacement from where they were from, with the backdrop of incredibly hard work, with the backdrop of, of racism and so many other things. The, they escaped that in, in a way that was um, just, you know, there's so much in there that, that I could have learnt from. And now being 34, sitting in the social sector and having some narratives played back to us about, you know, what, what we what we need to do in these spaces, I actually fundamentally reject them. And I've, you know, been having arguments with CEOs of, of funders over the last couple of years because I just don't agree that we're on the on the right track. So when you say what was missing, nothing was missing, really. My life was abundant. Right, but what was missing is this understanding that actually we had we had all of this in us, we we had a whole abundance and of assets and lessons and stories of ways of living that were circular, regenerative, that were collective, that were intergenerational, that were were like valued experience over um, products and and capitalism and and all of that and and more of that. And more and more and understanding that deeply would have changed uh, my early working life. But thankfully, God, you know, I'm, I'm still fairly young and, and, <laughs> and, and I'm like fighting back now. Um, but, but in terms of that, so I, I love the word abundance um, because the abundance is there. How then do you communicate that yeah. to the powers that be in the social mm-hmm. sector, to commissioners where um, that abundance... Yeah. You know, in the conversations I have, uh, the people I speak to are so far away from really grasping and also trusting that abundance that comes from within communities because they do see things as products. Well, look, so I think this is really, it's got even more problematic for me over the last couple of years because I think the over-professionalisation of that participation space um, that space where the the abundance of communities, um, you know, it's not that funders aren't talking about asset based this and participation that and resource this, um, you know, they are. But actually, um, the under they, one, it's been completely over professionalized and colonized by the same people. Right. Like it's been taken over by all the same forces that are writing papers and reports and all of this and playing into the structures that then mean they can draw down um, money. You then have to fit into that if you want to try and talk that language, which then means you're already creating a, a narrative and a language that rejects what you why you were starting. And and so I think there's a real problem there with that. Uh, how do you engage your power on this? So that's what I'm in the middle of okay. um, and really think, thinking about right now. But actually what, what we're really trying to do is start from where we are, yeah. outside of London, working with incredible people um, to really recapture our narratives, our visions for the future. Because actually it's even in that 
over-professionalised kind of participation and asset-based space, it's still under a, a certain view of the world. Mm-hmm. And there's still... And what what under these ideologies, what I don't think people realise is that that actually like a lot of a lot of those in power they have different expectations for what they expect from different people so even when you look at like when i see critiques of of our work people will say what does this mean to this person and even when i'll say it means this they've got this idea that those who are in the most difficult circumstances only deserve a certain type a future like this yeah. sort of works perfect over here and then like this beautiful crazy visionary work that can be in london or in new york or whatever but it, it because it doesn't mean anything to the person on the ground they don't have the right to like dream or be engaged in something uh, much bigger so what i'm really trying to do is reject this lowest common denominator type thinking yeah. right like actually um i i and my uh generation um and my ancestors are products of of dreams right of unwilding unruly dreams about what the future can look like when they were multiply oppressed in so many different ways from uh british colonization of india through massive um uh, upheavals like partition like um so much i'm a, I'm a sikh so so much of what happened to sikhs uh, in india understay we're the products of like unwilding unlimited limitless dreams we're not uh, a product of, well, this is it, right? So what we're going to do is we're going to see what the lowest common denominator of what you can all agree on or understand, and then we're just going to sort of do that. That is a, such a crap place to start from. And it, it, it means that children grow up thinking the future is a zero for someone. And if you transplant that onto now, even if we're not talking about like the, the raci- racialized element of this, Children growing up right now are growing up in a time where, in, in, in Britain, right, where you can be protesting climate and trying to get the government's attention and you're being arrested, but the prime minister of your country can break the law and dupe people into at a scale unknown for many, many decades into all sorts of different things, um, can be... Uh, well, didn't you, well, I don't. You don't. I don't need to say what Boris Johnson's been up to without everybody knowing. Do you know? And and that is not criminal. They're growing up in a time of Trump. They're growing up in a time where actually, genuinely, even without apocalyptic scenarios, the future will be a fundamentally different one because for many, many, many decades, um, the impacts of uh, largely whiteness on the climate has completely put us to a stage where where their future will look really different. Now, within that, if we just create a kind of zero-sum, lowest common denominator, everything will be a little bit better for everyone type scenario, we're really royally screwed. However, if you take so much from the richness of what we what we've just talked about, about the fact that, yes, life might be different and, yes, there's lots of things to blame, but imagine what more circular, more connected, more equal, more anti-racist, more beautiful neighbourhoods could look like where we're growing locally, where we're living intergenerationally, where we're not travelling as much, where there's less cars, where things are more just for uh, disabled people because there's less cars and we can design around them that are dementia-friendly. You know, this... A, a, a local, circular, regenerative, beautiful neighbourhood could be stunning, a stunning vision. But that's just not where we're, where we are at right now. And and I'm just really determined, no matter what it takes, to get into communities where power is telling them, yeah, this is this is as much as you can dream of. They're talking a lot about ownership. They're talking a lot about participation, but only within a very narrow frame of what that's allowed to look like. Um, and so I, that's that's what I really care about. And I, even if I'm, this is all I shout about to my dying days, I will fight for it because I think it's a real problem, a real problem where you have a young generation growing up in this because because we're not going to tackle the future like this, but we're all certainly not going to get anywhere particularly exciting through this current sort of ideology of what the future can look like. What do you think the powers that be are scared of? Um... Because it's all part of a system. Two, two <laughs> things, right? So, so one is they just don't know, right? Like, you are a product of what you live in, 
and what you're ex- what you're around all the time. And if you're lar- if you largely spend a lot of time in London, only doing like study visits to different sites, and you're seeing you you can't quite see and feel right now how how things are. You haven't lived in it. The mo- majority of the the big funding CEOs, and there's some great ones, right? Like I have met some great ones the last couple of years, um, are white. They're middle aged and middle middle class, and the few that have made it there who are not having to survive in those structures as well. So so I think that they just don't see that necessarily. They don't see what's possible. They haven't grown up in that, that that they have to respond to over professionalized frameworks for all of this for anything to be to be um to be legitimate. And and I think that's a that's a real problem. Um but also I think I I don't know actually how to say this, but there is a real, like, we've been so overly scrutinised for the work that we've been doing, right? Overly scrutinised, the level of scrutiny into funding decisions and why are we doing certain things compared to so much other stuff has been, um, has been wild. And I just think I can't get away from the fact that we're 11 years into one of the most right-wing governments. There isn't a huge independent philanthropy scene in the UK so a lot of the big funders are in the in the lapse of power that power is in a totally different mindset about what the future of the UK is you know Pretty Patel let us know what she thinks a few days ago and so that plays out plays out in every level well, you see the CEOs yeah. cozying up to the ministers the ministers saying yes to things those see like it just plays all the way down well, well it's kind of interesting yeah. what what will civil society, and when I say civil society, I'm talking about charities here, um, because civil society is broader, but I'm talking about charities. What will they say in 20 years' time about what they've actually done to change the trajectories of what's happened over the last 10 years in terms of austerity, in terms of Brexit, in terms of social division, in terms of climate justice what what will be the legacy and i'm not asking you this question i it's a question i ask myself that you know social change is happening all of the time and happening really quickly yeah outside of our charitable structures so you can talk to people in the mainstream press about things in civil society and they'll talk about greta they'll talk about um you know, how a newspaper article and and how, uh, you know, has affected change really quickly. And yeah. these, you know, they talk about Stephen Lawrence case and yeah. various other things that are all happening without the co- outside of the confines yeah. of charity. Yeah. Um, yet charity talks so much about social change, social change, yet I'm still struggling to know exactly what the big thinking yeah. has been. And that's the thing, right? So the thing is, is the thinking is not happening in this country anymore. I know this from, because some of my colleagues at at, at Zero Zero are working with the Scottish government, the Swedish government, the Canadian government on real grand grand visions for the future of of their places. Um, Lots of the big, uh, exciting thinkers and doers that I worked with in the early part of my career have gone to Europe, have gone outside of this country because the thinking is not being invested in. The R&D is not being invested in. Social R&D is so important. Like, even if it doesn't provide the fruit immediately um, on the ground, right, in the poorest communities, that, that work is so important. But it doesn't mean that we don't also have the other work. And so this is one of the biggest flaws, I would say, that I've... I've I've been through in 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 this in the space recently is that the the thinking has become so limited as a result of austerity as a result of like um the narratives around brexit so the narratives around brexit have been you know that that it's it's divisions it's all the things that they've they've talked about and and no one's taken a critical view as to what else apart from you know uh, the brexit vote and how the charitable sector and how um, funding has worked that has led led to these spaces, and now everyone is is suffering as as a result of that. I think um, you're absolutely right though about the, Greta and uh, and the other other effects that are leading to different ways of organising. The main thing that I would say that is a a real positive 
of what I would say has been quite a risk averse, quite apart from a few people, because I know people who listen to this podcast will be like, hey, Imi, we've had a great time with you. And it's like, yes, no, you have, but that's systemically, yeah, it's, it's, it's not. It's, it's in not, pockets. It's in pockets. And, and right? it's also not um, in relation to the amount of investment that yeah. those will get. It, yeah, it doesn't absolutely. Compare. And, yep. and oh, well, I'll talk about that in a second. But what I was about <laughs> to say was that, you know, what, what times like this does do though is it it brings out the real creativity right like so if you don't give in if you don't sort of go okay well i'm just going to follow this to try and get money because the money is more important than anything else right if the integrity of the work falls or whatever well it's fine because something is better than nothing uh, is not something i ascribe to because then we get lots of something that has just changed to a certain ideology the good thing about this time is that it brings out the creativity. Yep. So your XRs and other things, you know, they 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 find other ways. And that's kind of what we've done. It's actually made me double down on, no, 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 the integrity of the work, of the vision, of, of what we want to do has to stay. Because the thing I was going to say to what you just said before is, because to be honest, the only bold work that has been funded in black and brown people in the time that I've been working in this country is in our pain and that's it it's in our pain it's not in our liberation it's not in the creativity and the abundance and the incredible histories and uh, visions for the future we have it's in it's in it's racialized into crime and uh, in our pain and in our challenges and and that narrative has kept following through all the time right the arts sector a little bit more is getting better we've got some great people out there yeah. uh you know shouting uh down the hatches about what needs to happen but but um but it it has not been about liberation it hasn't been about abundant bright futures it has not been about that and so i think though this period of time has made me has made me much more radical because I do not want to give in and the money does not matter at all cost, right? It's not at any cost. Uh, and so that's good because lots of other people are doing that that too. Absolutely. I wanted to come back to some of the work that you've been doing over the last few mm. years. Um, radical childcare. Yeah. Um, what is it? Um, in reality, what what, yeah. what does radical childcare mean? What were you trying to, to achieve yeah. through that work? Okay, so still still one of my favourite pieces of work, right? And we're developing it. I, I really am proud of this work. Um, and the reason why is so, so we, we found Hub. Right, we uh, have an incredible crowdfunder. We end up with a really uh, vibrant, incredible community. We're testing different ways of access. So we create a work trade program that's uh, you can access the hub through time, skills, and money. We're creatively programming and we're starting and we're embracing this conversation about actually challenges are complex. They are not silver, there's no silver bullets. Social change can't just be about groups of social enterprises and apps and, and all of that. It needs to be sophisticated, vibrant, um, uh, thoughtful movements of different actors. And it's about a year in. And actually how this happens, I don't know, right? At this point, I'm still like, I don't know how this is going to happen, but something good's happening here. Um, and I go back to that work by Marco Steinberg of his Helsinki Design Lab uh, and the Aging Studio. And it was quite a, a, a white middle-class pursuit, but the work was good. The integrity of the work, the models, the thinking. And I was like, this is fascinating. So I, how, do I, how do we start to do this in Birmingham? Not in the consultancies in London, not in a place where someone's been commissioned to do it, but right here in the heart of, of, of a city. How do we start to bring this thinking here? And other really normal things happen too, right? So my team, the hub took a lot longer than expected to build. So lots of people in my team started having babies. As they were having babies, they were saying, uh, one of my key team members, Amy Martin, uh, a creative producer, she was like, childcare is expensive. It's inflexible. The deposits are massive. How do I do this as a freelancer? She hadn't yet joined the hub team. Um, so she's talking about this. Other people are super interested. We're getting lots of uh, responses on social media. We do a few events. Amy's events are packed. So she starts really simply with a stay and play, then a crash. The crash turns into a parent membership, and then that's transformed into a child membership to send to the children. First hub in the world to, to do this. We bring it in. We invest. 
totally changes our demographic, changes the way the space works. Um, and I'm like, okay. And this is at the same time as that like childcare cooperative movement is like growing, never doing some work on it. And um, and then you start to discover the long, stunning history in Birmingham of, of the playgroup movement and all of this. Um, but then all these people being around and all these parents and families talking, it's expensive, it's inflexible, uh, the, the, this, this, the, the pedagogies are not as progressive or as interesting as I'm interested in for my children. Um, and then from that, you, you start to... I remember one day a conversation with parents said something like this to Indy about how childcare was expensive and inflexible. And he was like, that's not the real question. You need to look underneath what's happening. And so I just remember sitting there and going, we can do, we can do this now. We can take Helsinki Design Lab and we can start to make it happen in Birmingham. And over three years, there's lots of practical, all the practical stuff of, of, child-led programming, uh, creches, looking at family-friendly workspaces and all of that. But we turned it into a system lab, which actually was going to take some of the world's best thinking. And um, we spent three years doing hundreds of things from child-led ethnography called Mini Detectorists, where they went out and saw the world from their, from their eyes, all the way to um, lots of desk-based research, um, around the challenges, mapping them, working with dark matter on, on mapping them into the different, um, the ways in which these systems interplayed. We did ethnography across parents and children and families across the region from very well-off middle-class families all the way to those struggling the most um, outside of the, the, the dominant centre of Birmingham. And actually what we started to realise is that this whole story of system change is not too complex for communities to understand at all. Every person has a view of the system and understands their challenges in a really deep way to the point where they can help map and think about the challenges in ways that we can't even even begin to imagine. And starting to put people who understood that with people who understood how to do the work in a really sophisticated way um, started to just bring magic. So we didn't stop there. We continued to map, to unravel, to programme, to work with children, to run the creche, to do stuff across the, the, the city. We helped other people incubate ideas, set things up. And then we sort of got to a culmination point where I was like, okay, this is all fantastic. We had all of this sort of work through Helsinki Design Lab, through... Um, uh, cabinet office obesity systems work you've had it loads of times where we go look at this complex systemic interplay okay what next um and that's where i think the magic came so we ran a design lab over a week with everyone from uh, children to uh, uh, families right on the edge um and really struggling uh, financially and uh, in many uh, social challenges but were abundant in so many so many ways all the way to the head of the children's trust to people who were system scientists and and we brought them together for a week and um and we started to take this a step forward which was saying okay what if if this is what we know what how would we intervene at, at a place-based level what, what would we do right so it isn't just about saying unless you're working on the whole system in one go your work is irrelevant actually what it started to do when people could see where they sat on this map of complex interplays between so many different things is it liberated them to be able to say i'm working on this so instead of saying my job is to now end childhood obesity it's like i'm working on this part of the system to do this and I need to work with these people and I need to and changing that language was the first thing um people were really liberated within that complexity not overwhelmed not too complicated not for those people not for these people there is a design challenge in that you have to really work hard at making something simple but it wasn't this idea that those people can only deal with this so many people on the front line were saying you know we never know how to challenge systems and being part of this process has given us like confidence um and then i saw the winnipeg boldness project in canada uh working in point douglas which was really starting to like now intervene at a place-based level uh on systemic challenges and i was like i'm pretty sure there's a way to put forward a framework for how you would 
if you're going to work in a place, instead of saying educational outcomes need to be improved, so let's build an extension on the school or something, you could start to say, hey, um, it, or, or we need more teachers, so let's employ more teachers, which is important. Um, but actually, it's also about breakfast. It's also about damp in homes. It's also about chronic stress on teachers, about all these things. So you could start to think about systemic uh, investments in that way. So we put together, with the help of hundreds of people through those months, um, 10 key ways in which you would intervene in a place within each way we unlocked different types of things right so in the 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 part of the 10 interdependent investment areas is a whole thing about play and there's loads of stuff wales has legislated for play so places have to report back on you know how what playful interventions have have happened in in their ward or their place to play streets to like large big ideas so in each inter in uh, investment area we said Here's small ideas that anyone can jump onto. Here's medium-sized ideas that are already done around the world. They, they can seem bold, but someone's already done it, and it works, trust us. And then the big bets. So we started to build a framework of saying that you don't have to be completely destabilised and uh, completely stuck by complexity. You can actually create frameworks in which everyone can be involved. Citizens can see how their play street plays a part in a big uh, uh, drive for changing play in the area. Actually, so many people talked about financial poverty, but one of the biggest problems was time poverty, the running between here and there and, and how that affected the way they fed, how the activities they could do, the time they had with their children, the perceived guilt. So we had a, a section called Making Time, right? And that started to look at systemic interventions and big things like your equivalent of universal basic income or basic services or whatever could be a big bet things that other people had done in the middle of that but what local communities had done to buy more collective caring and time so i just Do wanted you have to have an example of that yeah. of, of how they so, were yeah like so collect uh, child um uh, childcare cooperatives, uh, intergenerational care, where you're putting children and older people together um, and that they can together benefit each other. The wisdom of um, older uh, residents in a community impacting on children's uh, learning. And, uh, you know, we all know the, the research on the role of grandparents, uh, but not everybody can live near their grandparents anymore. Equally, the other way around, children, um, you know, spending time with older people who are often isolated, who might not have anyone to talk to. And the, the challenge with all those smaller ideas is those intergenerational projects, the play streets, the, the, the lovely, nice things that we do at a community level, is that once you've been in that space for a long time, you know that it's not enough, right? But that doesn't mean that work's not important. What it means is that those, all of the ideas... Those working on the big, you know, we need a universal basic services in this country or whatever, um, they can do their piece. Your resident can do their play street, but they can see how they connect. And that was a dream of, of radical childcare. We, um, and we're still doing loads of work on it, but coming out the back of that system lab and watching people start to not just collaborate, but say, you know, if I do my play street, but I know there's a movement to fight for legislation of, for play in my city i know how these i know how my bit and all my community work and my play group and my um you know connecting children and older people uh my little whatever shared batch cooking i know how that's connected to the wider movement for this and for that and um and so that's been liberating and i say it all the time and i still will fight to the end of the days for this communities can of all scales, all knowledge levels can embrace complexity, can embrace bold visions, can, can, can embrace and know that just fixing that one little part of the system is not the only problem. The problem is, is this work takes rolling up your sleeves and getting in and believing in the infinite capacity of all people. And that you can't do sitting from the top. That's why you'll hear funders say, unless that document appeals from a, to the lowest common like denominator of knowledge, then there's no point in the work because we need to engage. Actually, no, you've got to roll your sleeves up. You've got to decentralise this country. You've got to get the big powers and talents out 
of the city centre, uh, city of London. You've got to get them in communities, and you've got to fund people who say that actually we believe in so much more, and that this work can be so much better, and it can be so much deeper, and that it isn't just about even if you're making a decision of eating or heating your house, if someone believes in you and your infinite capacity magic things can happen so for me yep it's a it's a intervention framework that shows how you can intervene into system systemic challenges at a neighborhood level at a city level it's a beautiful piece of work it's embedded it thinks about complexity and and systems but most importantly it believes in the infinite capacity of all people um and actually why starting with the most marginalized the most disenfranchised the most uh socioeconomically um left behind by this country those two worlds can come together it's just that it's a bit harder than like being able to make a set of rules from the top about how what what good work looks like so yeah that's what radical childcare was sorry it's a bit of a long no, answer no, no, but I, i'm so wild about that work i just i still think it's really important i wanted to i mean before i i speak about i mean i know that the, the hub is 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 transitioning mm -hmm. into civic square but before i, I get onto civic yeah. square um and and the conception of you know originally you've got this physical space mm -hmm. that you're in and and um some of the work you're doing now J just a couple of more um things that you've been working on yeah. creative resistance and demo dev yeah. um explain well, those these two, two i won't tell you of, too much about them yeah. but they Going back to that first thing I said about trying to understand what can keeps great, brilliant um, uh, talent together, what engages communities um, and citizens into the most complex challenges, and then what that looks like in reality um, was not like a set framework where I said, this is the Impact Hub model for social change in complex uh, times, right? You know, that's not what I wanted to do. You take this framework and you apply it to housing, you apply it to children, families, you apply it to anything. We, I wanted to see how this uh, grew. And Radical Childcare happened, like I said, it happened very practically. And then we found a whole new world through this. Um, and we wanted to start to understand problems more deeply. Um, but then that looked different for other things. So I didn't force, I didn't say we're going to have a housing program. We're going to have a children and families program. Later, one of my co-founders was a data whiz and had spent a couple of years on looking for, um, uh, analyzing land ownership in the, in the region. And he found that there was nearly, th uh, 3000 homes worth of land owned by the council that was, um, unviable for traditional developers because it wasn't big enough. It was, um, you know, it wouldn't bring them the returns that they wanted, so it's sitting empty. And he put a proposal together of of how you could use modern making technology like WikiHouse, which is part of the Zero Zero family, but lots of other technologies too, could uh, unlock community-led housing and community-led building of their own homes and communities on this land that was just sitting empty. And so that was a very different type of intervention, right? It started with data, it added on tech, and then it said, hey, you could we could unlock a whole generation of citizen-led, citizen developers, um, not to, to solve the housing crisis, to be part of that big and small developers. And that was really, um, and, and that's developed now into Birmingham Community Homes. Demo Dev is all about unlocking small sites and land and looking at um, the potential of community-led housing. Um, and it's developing into lots of awesome ways. But again, the most important learning from this was that actually change can start in different places. This idea that everything you do has to start either by this or by this is just not true. In the system, there's all sorts of leverage points and data and tech was the first one here. And then that connecting that to this big bulging movement of citizen housing people created a, a new space in the middle. Um, and thirdly, creative resistance was like that too. That was not um, because I was like, I want an artist program at the hub. It's because lots of artists working at the intersection of cities, race, class, gender, social justice were attracted to the hub. Um, and I, I didn't, I, I know why, but it wasn't something that we were expecting. And so slowly we started to look at what is the role of those artists um, in a, a community like the hub. Um, and we grew from there. So we have these sort of three open movement areas at the moment that grew from their own starting points, um, used their own uh, leverage points. Some were very, very on the ground people led. Some was a little a little bit different. Um, 
And it's taught me a lot about not being really binary about the process, not saying social change starts like this or like this, or it's only valid if this happens or that happens. Because the truth is it starts in all sorts of unexpected ways, like Greta, like um, uh, the the team having children and suddenly being like, oh, what are we going to do? Um, or like data or like a mind that thought, hold on, what are we doing with all this land? And to say how powerful the demo dev work is, you know, now, whilst Birmingham hasn't taken it up for its own reasons, um, you know, across the country, in Bristol, in other places, the small sites thinking is is small sites and land is, is absolutely exploding. Homes England are doing stuff on it. London has its own small site strategy. So um, all of those things have taught me one clear thing, though. You have to really not care about who takes the credit and you've got to do the work. That's it. You gotta do the work. You gotta put it open source it, and ninety nine percent of the time, it will never be credited back to you in the way that you think it needs to. And even that, and even though I think that's worse for black and brown people's labour, from a bigger picture, I just really care about doing the work that has the right but integrity. That's a tough spot to be in because yeah, it is. because that misappropriation yeah. of black and brown knowledge yeah. thought you know, who soaks up the money. And we've yeah. seen that with the professionalization of yeah. Yeah. civil society yeah, that totally. we have tons of intermediaries yeah. that will spend lots of time around black and brown people, yeah. extract and then sell the that money. back yeah. and and yeah. claim the money. And and yeah. so it's 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 a it's a tough place to be how in. do you, I guess, on a more positive sense, yeah. um self care. Yeah, so, <laughs> around so I do that in yeah. two in do that in two ways. So being part of Zero Zero has taught me about radical openness. Take out everything, right? Take everything out of that space through WikiHouse, through Open Desk, through all of that work. It was all improved by open sourcing the tech globally and letting people improve it and and working in this radically open way. So when I say what I said before about doing the integrity of the work no matter what um, uh, has mattered to us and I don't actually still genuinely don't care what happens with it because we're just going to continue to do that work at the same time I am very vocal on on the things that I'm vocal about right and I will over prioritize black and brown labor and and what what it means to credit it what it means to work to support it and fund it and get it elevated I will do these two things at the same time and the reason for that is because IP is dead, right? Open source, like work and working and technology is the only way we're going to deal with um, so many of the challenges. You could do so much now through the uh, tech platforms that we have, and you can do, you can move things um, forward in so many ways. And there's no point me knowing everything I know about the hub and radical childcare and not just putting it out there for everyone else to take. That is crucial because that's the future. In a perfect world, that's the future. At the same time, I know this is also a fight and I don't let them conflate. And the reason for that is because I could spend my whole career being really angry about that and have not put stuff out there, right? So I'll do these two things together. And also my whole team isn't black and brown, right? Like the, the work isn't, ev it is everyone's fight, but we also have to get on with the work. Like it's an imperfect world. So for me, I, I have to on a day-to-day -day basis just navigate these two worlds but know that ultimately the work is most is most important and and i'll still fight my fight <laughs> <laughs> the transition between hub to civic square um explain a little about that that transition but also the concept behind civic square it's it's a step up really. It's um, you'll see from a lot of the communication online. We we talk very much with impacts of transitioning into Civic Square. It's not a brand new venture. It's not a whole brand new set of thinking. It is you know even practically it's changing the name of the company, upgrading the vision and the mission. It stems from three things: knowing that the work we've done has been good, but it's being in the city centre is not where it's going to have the most. Um, you know, where nobody lives and nobody's experiencing the, the harsh end of what's happening in our neighbourhoods um, is not the right place for it. So we wanted to become much more embedded in a place um, that many of us grew up. Um, and secondly, um, I don't want to do Civic Square and I don't want to do the hub. What I want to do, if I could, is take the public library strategy. If somebody would give me the public library strategy, I would go and revitalise and repurpose 
libraries fit for the 21st century with shared kitchens, with maker spaces, with spaces to learn, study and connect, as well as read and books. And I'd put librarians and those who work in spaces like this right to the top of what we uh, we care about alongside teachers and others. I'd retrofit them like a, a Carnegie-esque for all his problems, you know, but it was a grand vision. Uh, yeah, I mean, it 1700 was, it, libraries, yeah. community libraries over 40 years. Why? Massive times of transition, which we are in. Labour market changes, tech uh, changes, um, nationalism, division, climate transition, all these things, these times of huge uh, economic and technological and industrial transition requires new typologies of institution. The Carnegie Libraries was... A part of that, it was about democratising knowledge at the neighbourhood level. Yes, it was to create more workers and all of that, but that's what it was about. So if I could, that's what I'd be doing. But that's not how things work in reality. And What, what, yeah. what would we yeah. need yeah. to happen to make it work? Because it's a valid question yeah. to say, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. What's the mm. grand vision yeah. here in terms of civil society's contribution to bringing communities together? Yeah at a time of real major social fracture. Yeah. And we know that for all of the problematic things about American philanthropy, yeah. those big and grand visions, yeah. Carnegie yeah. and libraries yeah. and the importance of libraries, yeah. um, Rosenwald and, yeah. and the schools for black children yeah. um, uh, back in the, the early 1920s or, yeah. or that particular era. Black Panther Party, Black Black Panther, Panther, the Breakfast Clubs. The Breakfast right? Clubs, like, yeah. These are institutional plays. Yeah. They, were, they, were, they were taken, they were made out to be these nice community things. They weren't. They, mm. were, they were. They were radical and they were big institutional yeah. plays at a time where that was really, really needed. What, what I would do is I would, I'd put the libraries into a collective national trust like the NHS and I'd reinvent them. I'd put billions into them. I would create like Eric Kleinberg says, these palaces for the people, by the people, on every neighbourhood corner to allow us to become really, really resilient and really hopeful uh, about the future with all the tools we need in 21st century society. I will, I'm still, like, when, when the Civic Square work comes out, that's still where I am at. But in my practicality of building it, um, we needed to find other leverage points. So, um, So what we've... What we've done is we've upgraded what we're doing. We've talked about the big issues in society that are going to need to be transitioned through and why the reinvention of the public square at the heart of communities is going to be really important, why so many of the ideas from things like Civic Square are important to high streets and moving beyond just a retail top-down approach um, to really uh, revalue um, all the things I talked about, about how we live more circularly, more regeneratively together intergenerationally, where we look at care, where we look at um, the way we grow food, we look at the provenance and procurement and our supply chains in really radical ways at a neighbourhood level. So there's a whole load of neighbourhood economics work and regenerative economics work we're doing with Kate Rayworth. Shout out to Donut Economics if you haven't read it. It is sick. Um, <laughs> but like, so we're thinking about the economics behind that because what you what you measure is what you make and if we're measuring the wrong things then we're making the wrong things and we need to build something very different in the future so we've got this economics piece going on there and then we've got you know it's still a place it's still a place i love build i love spaces i love venues i love building places and i think people need to understand how much power comes with running space and how much power you have um, and hopefully we utilize that in a positive way but so much of uh you know uh real estate is not used in that open generous connected way so there's still a place um and it's all about really getting uh back into the heart of a place that that uh is is on the fault line of some of the most um wealthy parts of birmingham and most traditionally deprived parts of Birmingham and actually looking at how could the benefits of um, all the regeneration that will be gentrification in the area, could we look at different ways in which those flows can actually benefit many, many more people? Um, I'm not going to be radical on what I think we're going to achieve with, with that piece on here because we're not early enough in the development process. I needed to be in the economics of it you know, right at the beginning of when the master plan for Birmingham was done. 
But I'm really hopeful that um, what we can do is show a way in which we can think about commercial sustainability um, and and all of that, but then look at the spaces that really uh, are needed in the 21st century for communities. And my hope is that there's never another civic square again, right? And the reason for that is I don't want to create an empire. I want to open source the learnings. Secondly, I want us to be able to do this in the libraries. I want to create those palaces for by the people with all the stuff we need for this huge period of change to be put in the corner of every community. Um, so Civic Square for now is my way of doing that. Um, and it's going to be amazing. But I hope that it isn't, it, isn't, it isn't the answer. I hope all the principles from it go into all these different places. And to finish on this, I have to say, right, like, Look, we can't... I, I spent so much time in, in spaces of power recently and everyone's just smiling and going, yeah, we're going to do this and we're going to do this and we're, we're going to create more of this, um, you know, uh, credit unions and this and that. The bottom line is, right, we are at the back end of 10 years of the absolute decimation of our local civic and social infrastructure, from libraries to youth clubs to... Um, uh, um, children's centres you know there are no longer these spaces this is having a massive effect on society and it will continue to have a massive effect on society and I'm doing Civic Square because this is my way of being able to get on with practically showing where we need to be but you know what I'm not one of these innovators who pretends that none of that exists and Civic Square is the answer because it's bloody not right it is the, the bit where we show what's needed, but you can't just take the bottom of society out and then expect everybody to just flourish. And so so Civic Square shows the typologies of things that are needed, but what we need is a radical investment in our social and civic infrastructure in a way um, that's never been seen before because not only have we got all these transitory times coming up that are scary and uh, we're not ready for, but we're doing it on the back end of massive underinvestment and decimation and eradication of the things that we know make a good, safe, just society. So so it's kind of like, I want to be really careful on that because when you get these sort of innovative voices going, oh, this is what we need. The truth is, yeah, this is what we need, but we also needed none of that to have happened. And at a time where we should have been doing a Carnegie-esque investment, instead of that, we just deleted and got rid of all the things that we knew you know, created safer, safer places. So I just want to have that as my caveat. <laughs> Imi, thank you. No um, how can people get hold of you, hear more about your work, get involved with your work? Yeah, uh, so... Uh, yeah, definitely don't ever email me because um, like, I know that for a fact. My emails are like out of control. Like seriously, <laughs> honestly, uh, yeah. Uh, on Twitter, uh, Imicor, um, come down and see what we're doing in Birmingham. Uh, the site is visitable now, um, and uh, we've got a closing festival coming up. We're doing some amazing work with a bunch of great economists and all sorts in early November. So come down and hang out for the last seven weeks of the hub. Um, and yeah, support Civic Square, fund Civic Square, uh, fund other people like me. Let's fund liberation, not just pain. And uh, yeah, thanks so much, Derek. It's been fab. Brilliant. Thank you, Imi. Um, and thank you for listening to Just Cause with Derek A. Bardwell. If you like this pod, please give us a five-star rating um, and su subscribe. It really all helps. And you can find me on Twitter at Derek A. Bard. Um, and I will see you soon. Thank you. Woo, bye.